Well, in the second book of Douglas Adams's uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, one of my favorite uh, science fiction series, it's called the, the Restaurant at the End of the Universe. And uh, in this book, the, the main characters, they decide to have a bite at Milliways, also known as the Restaurant at the End of the Universe. And uh, the way the restaurant works is it's very expensive, but you, you invest one penny and then you make a reservation for the day that the universe ends. And then you get in a time travel machine and you go to that day into a specific place where Millie Ways is. And by then, uh, the penny that you invested thousands of years before can pay for this entire experience. And so it actually works out free. So a lot of people in the universe do this. They, they go to the restaurant at the end of the universe. And when you get there, you order your meal, you sit down, you enjoy it. It's at the best vantage point for the destruction of the universe. And so while you're eating... Um, the universe begins to explode and unravel at an atomic level and everything collapses and implodes and crashes into each other. And as the destruction gets closer and closer to you, um, you know, your heart rate goes up or whatever, but don't worry, you're safe because everything's been programmed that just as the universe, the destruction of the universe reaches that last point where the restaurant is, uh, you get transported back to safety back to where you came from. So that's kind of the scenario there. And people love doing this because they'll sometimes go over and over to the restaurants at the end of the universe because it gives such perspective on the brevity of life and the things that are important. The maitre d' of the restaurant gives a little speech each night and he says, I know that many of you come here um, to watch this final end of everything and then return home to your own eras and raise families and strive for new and better societies and fight terrible wars for what you know to be right. It really gives one hope for the future of all life kind. Except, of course, and he waved at the blitzing turmoil above and around them, that we know it hasn't got one. <laughs> there is no future for all of life. It's all going to unravel in the universe, and we know that. Well, the Metro D has a point in that you really understand your perspective in the grand scheme of things when you understand how things are going to end, where they're going to end, and what is really important in life. So Douglas Adams, of course, gets it wrong, um, the end of the universe and how it happens, but his point is valid. And tonight we'll see that Jesus shows his disciples a glimpse of what comes after the world is destroyed, in a sense, uh, where this order that we know it is and the kingdom coming, and he does so so that it will shape their perspective as they think about the future. And so for this glimpse of the kingdom to come, turn to Luke chapter 9. Luke 9. Last week we did just one verse, the kind of the introductory verse to this whole section, and then of course the last verse I'll do on Sunday morning, uh, as I just said now, about the audible verse, voice of God and kind of unpacking that. But you'll remember the, the context Jesus um, predicts that the Son of Man will come in glory, and then he says in chapter 9, uh, verse 27, but I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. And we looked at that in some depth, and how that refers to the people standing there at the time, some of them would not taste death until they saw something to do with the glory in the kingdom of God, and then the very next thing that happens is this account where Jesus shows them a glimpse of his glory. But we didn't really get into the meat of what they saw, and so that's what we're going to be dealing with tonight. So let me read for you um, from verses 28 and following. Luke 9, 28. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, 
and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they came fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good that we're here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses, one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. And he was saying these things, as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. Well, tonight we're going to look at three tantalizing tastes of the kingdom that change our perspective on life. The first taste is the worship in the kingdom, the fellowship in the kingdom, and finally the lordship in the kingdom. So that's what we're going to look at tonight from this text. Uh, Let's look at the worship in the kingdom as hinted here in verse 29. As Jesus was praying, the appearance of his face was altered. His clothing became dazzling white. Now, a good preview of forthcoming attractions, this sneak peek of a movie should get you to say at the end of that trailer, I can't wait to see that movie. Have you ever seen that? You've been watching one movie, you've got your popcorn or whatever, and it's the, it's the trailers, and this is kind of a waste of time, but then there's this one that just draws you in. I remember so clearly watching some movie, I don't remember what the movie was, but I remember the trailer, it was just black, and it just, the trailer just started with the sound. Remember that one? The voice of Darth Vader's breathing. And it was when the first episode of Star Wars was coming out. You know, the, you know how it works. Um, when that first happened, I was like, no way. They're, they're making more Star Wars movies? Like, oh my goodness. And then with the lightsabers and everything. And at the end of it, I was just like, please, Lord, don't come back till I see that movie kind of thing. It was like, I must see that movie. Well, that's what's happening here. Jesus has predicted the end of the world. He's predicted the coming of himself with his angels in glory. And he said, there's some here that are going to get a sneak peek of that. Some of you won't die before you actually see that glory. And then a week later, he goes onto the mountain. They don't know what's happening. They don't know what's about to happen. They're just there eating their popcorn kind of thing. You know, they've fallen asleep, in fact. I mean, Jesus has this this habit of hiking up these mountains with them, and then he's praying, and he just prays and prays and prays, and they're just like, okay, I'm done praying. You know, I did my 20-minute prayer. He's been going for three hours or whatever it is. They fall asleep. We see that happen a couple of times in the Gospels. And then something wakes them, and as they awake, you can imagine the first one waking up being like, oh, wake up, wake up, look what's happening. And Jesus has been praying, and while he was doing this, this glimpse of the kingdom has started unfolding. And so here we see the first characteristic of the kingdom of God. The kingdom worship means that we will see Jesus as he really is. That was the privilege that these three disciples, uh, James, John, and Peter, had on this mountain, which we now call the Mount of Transfiguration, because that's what happened. We don't actually know where it is. But there's a couple of candidates in Israel, and we'll see a few of those when we go there. Um, but he's hiked up there, and they, they see that kingdom worship is seeing Jesus as he really is. Because verse 29 says that as he was praying, his, the appearance of his face was altered. 
So do you understand what's happening here? Um, the, the word Luke uses for altered there, it's the word heteron, where we get the word um, hetero from. You know, homo means the same as in, in um, Greek, and hetero means different from in Greek. And so this is that word. So his face started looking different. Matthew, when he records the same event, he uses a Greek word, metamorphone. So metamorphosis, right? Like a little ugly cocoon, I mean, little ugly uh, caterpillar climbs into the cocoon, does his little Superman change and comes out and he's a beautiful butterfly. But he looks nothing like a caterpillar anymore. He's now it's got legs, it's got wings, it's got color, it's got proboscis and antennae. Um, it's, it's a completely different creature, really, even though it's not. So there's this metamorphosis. That's what's happening to Jesus' face. So do you know why that's happening? Because think about it. Jesus, Jesus became flesh... But what, is, what did he look like for eternity past? What's he going to look like for eternity future? You know, when you go to Disneyland and your kids are waiting in line to get a picture with, you know, Goofy, and you, you finally get in the door and there's Goofy, and you're like, wow, where did they find an actor who looks just like a dog? I mean, you never, you never think that. You understand that actor has a completely normal life. He looks normal when he's at home, but he has put on the Goofy suit. And yet, a lot of people think of Jesus, the way he's depicted in movies and in art and stained glass windows, you don't understand is that, that that's not what he's like at home. He, he kind of put that suit on, as it were. Um, Philippians, for example, tells us, Philippians 2 verse 7 says that he took on the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. He took on this form, being born in the likeness of men. There was this time on earth that he took on a, I don't know, like a, this appearance that he had. So let me ask you, what did Jesus look like when he was six days old? And the answer is a a newborn. (laughs) He was a, whatever, chubby little newborn. Um, And what did he look like when he was a toddler? Well, he looked like a toddler. So you can see, he, he looked like a human and so what did he look like on this day when they were hiking up the mountain? Well, he would have looked like a 33-year-old, tan, sweating, middle-aged Jewish man. But he, he didn't look like a baby or a toddler or a, a, a tan Jewish man in eternity past. Nor will he look that way in eternity future. So what does he really look like? That's what these three men got to see, and that's what we're going to get to see when we're in the kingdom. We will see Jesus as he really is. Isaiah 53, verse 2, tells us that he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. So speaking of the time that he was on earth, his form was described as no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. My sister once described me, I think she was trying to set me up with one of her friends um, or something, and the friend asked, so is your brother good looking? And the part of the conversation I heard was when she said, well, he's average looking. So that became a joke in our family. Clint's the average looking one. I was okay with that. I'm like, hey, you can do a lot worse than average looking, right? But that's what Jesus was. He was average looking in the sense that there wasn't something about him that drew people to him because of his physicality. He wasn't a particularly um, uh, appealing, attractive 
person. That's not why people came. His appeal and his attractiveness came from his wisdom and from his power and from his righteousness and his kindness and his character and who he was. That's what Isaiah 53 two means. He had no formal majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. Speaking physically. Contrast that to the first king that Israel chose for themselves. Tall, dark, and handsome Saul, who was just a loser in the end. Here comes Jesus, and he's got, he, he doesn't command his following through his physicality, but through his love. So this is what he really looks like, though. In Revelation 1.14 and following, we get this description. John sees a vision of heaven, kingdom glory, and he sees this manifestation of Jesus in heaven, and he describes it this way, Revelation 1.14. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in the furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. And in his right hand he had seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. I mean, that is a glorious picture of Christ in his power. Have you ever stared at the sun? When I was a kid, my friends and I used to challenge each other to see who could stare at the sun the longest without turning away. We all wear glasses now. Um, we, we all have bad vision. I don't know if that's correlative or causative, but anyway, don't, don't do that. But in verse 29, we are told here um, that as he was praying, his appearance was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. Dazzling white. Um, just like the appearance of his face shining like the sun in Revelation. So this is glory. This isn't white. Uh, when, when we have something that's white, it's because it's... It's the way it's reflecting the rays of the sun and the way our eyes are absorbing it. That's not what's happening here. Jesus' clothing and his face, they're not white because it's being reflected the sun. It is, it is brilliant. It is dazzling. It is generating glorious light. In fact, we're told in Revelation 21, 23 that in the New Jerusalem, the city has no need for sun or moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives its light and its lamp is the Lamb. So the, the New Jerusalem is a city that's not illumined like ours is from, from you know, the stars and the moon and the sun. It's illumined by the glory of God. They will just always, you'll always be able to see everything in the New Jerusalem because of the glory of God. But the, the light source, the lamp, is the Lamb. That's Jesus. And so I always like to picture as as Jesus moves through the New Jerusalem, you know that there's all these different levels because it's a cube, kind of the size of Australia, turned on its side. It's this big, big city. The dimensions are given in Revelation. As he moves through the city, it also tells us the city's walls are made out of a gold that is refined to the point that it's translucent. So it's this metal that's transparent, and the city's built out of it. And so wherever Jesus walks, his glory, his, his dazzling glorious appearance is shining and so you will know where Jesus is because you'll be able to see from the shadows you know right now the shadow shows you wherever the sun is but in heaven the shadow will show you wherever Jesus is and and think of all the rainbows it talks about the rainbows in heaven and all the refracting light from the glory of God coming from his person I mean isn't that amazing 
And so this is what they see. This is what they see on this mountain at night. You can imagine how absolutely flabbergasted they would be. And you sort of see Peter not knowing what he's saying. I mean, I'm with him. And the, the, the glorious thing here is that we will get to see him like that. This is the glimpse of the kingdom they were given. It's recorded for us to know that one day we will experience this type of worship in heaven. And we will see Jesus. First uh, John chapter 3, verse 2 says, Beloved, we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him, what? As he is. We shall see him as he is. When you see his glory, your fears will evaporate. Your doubt will dissipate in an instant. Your self-focus will just disappear. And you'll see him for what he actually is. And so they, they have this. We often picture Jesus, I don't know, if I say Jesus, what pops in your mind? You might picture him as a little baby, you know, in Bethlehem in the manger. You might picture him as the dead body that's draped over the lap of Mary, like Michelangelo's La Pieta. Or you might picture him hanging from a cross. People have that around their necks. Maybe you picture him as Jim Caviezel or Jonathan Rumi, the actors that play Jesus on TV. Who knows what you're picturing, but whatever you're picturing, it's wrong. Unless you are picturing someone who is so dazzling from the glory of God that when you see him, what did John do? He fell down like a dead person. That's what you should be picturing. That's what Jesus looks like. And so this glimpse that we get of Christ in his glory is meant to recalibrate our expectations of worship in heaven. Maybe there's been a point in your life where you thought heaven doesn't sound very exciting because, I mean, it's like, what, a never-ending church service? <laughs> Imagine telling your kid that. They're like, no, I never want to die. You know? <laughs> I don't want to go to a church service that lasts forever. But you don't, you don't understand. I mean, heaven's going to be a place of activity and industry and exploration and artistry and all these things. Um, I've got sermons on that explaining that from Scripture. But, but the, the central appeal of being in heaven is that when you see Jesus, it's not going to be boring. It's going to be electrifying all the time, every time you see him. And we also kind of, maybe you have this picture of you sitting on Jesus' lap and having a fat chat. Well, get in line, okay? I'm going to get there first, you know? Um, Like, everyone wants that. So, yes, I'm sure we'll each have intimate, personal time with Jesus. I'm not sure how all that works out, but, but what's great is you'll always know where he is from this light, and you know what it's like if you ever go to Hollywood or whatever, they have these celebrity sightings. You know, it's like, ooh, you know, Tom Cruise was spotted at this and this place. And people are like, oh, I, I saw so-and-so and I got a selfie with, with this celebrity or that celebrity. But imagine you're like walking, you're doing your work or whatever, and around the corner comes in, it's Jesus. And you're like, oh my goodness, there's Jesus, you know. That's what heaven's going to be like. You're going to be bumping into Jesus in heaven. I mean, it's amazing. I can't wait. Um, So that's the worship of the kingdom. The other taste that we get from this little glimpse of of the kingdom is the fellowship of the kingdom. So we've got the worship of the kingdom is that you're going to see Jesus as he is in his glory. And the fellowship of the kingdom you see in verse 30. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah. Luke just reports that. Who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. 
So Moses and Elijah made the, the guest list for this little soiree. Um, bear in mind that these two men lived hundreds of years apart from each other on the timeline and hundreds of years different from when Jesus was there, and yet they all know each other. And what does that tell you? Where did, where did they meet? Yeah, they met in heaven. They know each other from heaven. So isn't it cool to just see the fellowship that saints from different ages have with each other in heaven? So we're going to be part of that too. You're going to get to have coffee with Moses. By the way, you know how Moses makes his coffee? He brews it. Hebrews it. Anyway, I'll, I'll, work, I'll work on the delivery. Hebrew, because he, he spoke Hebrew. Anyway, um, you'll get to have coffee with Moses. You'll get to, to talk to Jonathan Edwards and Charles Spurgeon and, and your great-grandfather, if he was a believer, uh, and your great-great-great-grandchildren who you won't even meet in this life if they're believers. You'll get to speak you'll get to meet the saints of all the ages and fellowship with them and know them like Moses and Elijah know each other and know Jesus. They're friends with each other. This is amazing to me. Verse 31 tells us that they appeared in glory. This is another characteristic of the kingdom inhabitants. They themselves appear in glory. And what I like about this, the little information we get from this is that people who have died and people who have not died can both be glorified. They're both in glory. I don't know if that was a question you've ever had, but, but think about it. Mo- Moses died. You know, what's it, Deuteronomy uh, 34, Jesus, uh, God takes him onto Mount Nebo, shows him the promised land, he dies, and he gets buried. His soul goes to heaven. Elijah didn't die. He and Enoch, they're like the only ones that didn't have to go through that. So Elijah goes up to heaven in a, um, in a whirlwind. You know, the chariots of fire come, and then he goes up in a whirlwind and body and soul together. But both of these two together, they're equally kind of, they're glorified. So this, you might be saying, why is this relevant? Well, because there's, you might be in one of those two categories. We don't know which category you're in. If you die, then you're in the category of people who died. Pretty simple. But not everybody is in that category. Um, we are told in 1 Corinthians 15, behold, Paul says, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. In other words, we won't all die. But we shall all be changed. We will all be glorified. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. We who are alive, he means. For the perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. So some people die, some people don't. If Jesus comes back right now, we all, you know, the dead people rise first and they get their glorified body. I mean, they died, so they get some little privilege. They get it first. But we, all, we don't have to die. That's our privilege. And what we get is we still get the glorified body. All the saints do. Daniel chapter 12, verse 3 says that all the redeemed of all the ages shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, like the stars forever and ever. That's Daniel 12, verse 3. We shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, like the stars forever and ever. 
the citizens of the kingdom of heaven will be brilliant. Literally, we will be shining. We will dress in white linen, the book of Revelation tells us. We will shine with light. We will be able to teleport through walls and eat and drink if our bodies are anything like the glorified Christ's body. Now, what's cool about Moses and Elijah is that they get to fellowship not only with, with Jesus, but they're there with Peter, James, and John as well. So now you have, for the first time in, in history, really, a little meeting of glorified people and non-glorified people. So believers who are mortal and believers who are now immortal living, living together in the same little space. And again, this is such a great picture of the kingdom because the, in the millennial kingdom, this will be a time in history when that is normal. When those who have died in Christ and have received their reward, according to Revelation 20, part of our reward is that we will rise again to reign with him on earth. To reign, to rule, to govern. Well, who do we govern? Well, 1 Corinthians 6 tells us that we govern the angels. I, mean, I don't know what that means. Um, but also that we will govern the mortals who populate the planet. And ask me in the Q&A how all that works out, how they got there. But it's people that live through the tribulation. They have children for a thousand years. They repopulate the planet. And they are ruled and governed in, in the whole remade universe and galaxy or whatever. We are the ones ruling and reigning at that point. I mean, by we, I assume we die. Or are glorified current believers. The other implication of Moses and Elijah being in glory is that they were now perfect and sinless because only righteousness is allowed in glory. So if you go and read the story of Moses, was he sinless? No. That's why he dies on Mount Nebo and isn't allowed in the promised land. Uh, he, you know, he dies on the other side of the Jordan. He's not allowed in. Well, because he sinned. But now he's sinless. And how do we know he's sinless? Well, Revelation 21, 27 tells us that nothing unclean will ever enter the kingdom, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Nobody goes to heaven if they're unclean. So you say, well, hold on. I thought you said Moses was a sinner. Of course, everybody's a sinner. But that just shows you the power of Christ's blood to wash that clean and to make you righteous as righteous as Christ and give you that glory so that you can fellowship with Christ. Now, how did Peter recognize Moses and Elijah? They didn't have Facebook profiles in those days. They didn't have pictures up. How did they know? Well, apparently, glorified bodies emanate identity. I think that's how Jonathan Edwards explained it, uh, or described it. You emanate your identity. And you say, well, in what way? And the answer is, I don't know. I don't know. But, I mean, they knew it was Moses and Elijah just by looking at them. Maybe you have glorified name tags. I don't know. Maybe when you look at someone, their little profile pops up. He lived from then and then. This is what he did. This is what he's known for. These are his spiritual gifts. This is his name. Um, I don't know. I don't know what it is. But they knew. Somehow they knew. But think about the implication of this. Imagine being able to just recognize everybody that you look at. I really wish I had that superpower. Like if I had any superpower as a pastor, it would be just to look at people and know their names. 
because I've met people many times and still don't know their names. <laughs> and it's embarrassing as a pastor. You, know? you only have one name to remember. That's mine, and I've got to remember everybody's. Um, but imagine you just looked at someone, even though you'd never met them before, but you knew who they were. And they knew who you were. So think of that implication. There are some people here who lost children before they were born. Well, when you see that person in heaven, they won't be a baby, you know, they won't be a fetus, they'll be, a, they'll be grown in a mature age, but you'll recognize them as your child, and they'll recognize you. Isn't that cool? And you'll be able to have fellowship with, with your own children whom you've never even met. Or, or maybe you gave up a, a baby as, uh, in adoption, and you've, just, you've never seen them grow up, but they become a believer, you're a believer, you end up in heaven together. That's pretty cool. And, and all of your family, all of your past ancestors who are believers, and all of your, your um, progeny to come who are believers, your descendants, they'll all be there, and you'll all be able to recognize each other. And you'll be able to recognize which Joseph is which. You know, you meet somebody, hi, I'm Joseph. The one who married Mary, or the one with the Technicolor dream coat. You know, you're all wearing white. You all look the same to me. No, you'll know. You'll know each other. So, why are Moses and Elijah here? Now, commentators go off about, well, Moses represents the law, and Elijah represents the prophets, and I, I mean, I mean, maybe. Don't you think that if there was some significance in Moses representing the law and Elijah representing the prophets, that it would say so in one of the accounts? What it does say is this. Verse 31, they who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. Why are they there? Fellowship. These are friends of Jesus from home, coming to encourage him, coming to fellowship with him, coming to talk about his, his departure. The, the, the word Luke uses there for departure is a word that you will recognize. It's a Greek word, exodus. Exodus, isn't it? I can't help but think that there was like a moment of pun there between Moses and Jesus. Like Moses shows up and he says, so you ready for your Exodus? You know, it's like, you made me do it, you know. Um, I don't know if it was funny or not, but it's the word Exodus. That's what they came to talk about, the Exodus of Jesus. The departure from this life into his death is this departure from earth up to heaven. This whole traumatic experience that he's about to go through and in God's amazing grace the father who loves his son so much sends two of his buddies down there to encourage him I mean that's what it looks like that's what it says why did they come there they come to speak of his departure which was about to happen I mean his other buddies the sleepy ones over there they don't know what's going to happen he keeps telling them we're going to Jerusalem so I can die and rise again and they're always like why are we going to Jerusalem what's happening what's going on and then he, he dies, and they're like, what just happened? Why did he die? And then he rises again, and they're like, no, it couldn't be. It must have been the gardener that you saw, lady. It's like, hold on, I keep telling you, but they're just not getting it. So God sends him friends who get it, that know what he's going to go through, and can encourage him and talk to him about it. And we see that when he's in Gethsemane, God sends angels to minister to him. Because the humans just weren't getting it. He, he was, can you imagine how lonely that must have been to know what you're going through and no one else does? Have you ever been through like a, a really big surgery that you're nervous about? Isn't it comforting when 
a friend of yours or a couple of friends who have been through the same surgery or something similar come to you beforehand and just talk you through it. You know, this is what to expect. This is going to be okay. We know how this turns out. I mean, certainly Moses and Elijah didn't go through what Jesus was about to, but they went through their own traumatic experiences in their lives. Part of the kingdom of God is the fellowship that we have with redeemed believers of all ages. And so we can all empathize with Peter in his little embarrassing moment here. Um, you can imagine Peter getting to heaven and saying to, to like Luke and Matthew and them, like, really guys, you had to put that part in there? <laughs> Come on, you know? Why did it have to be in there? It's kind of embarrassing. Verse 33, as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good for us that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. <laughs> and then Luke says, not knowing what he said. But I mean, I would be that guy, wouldn't you? I mean, I would be like, wait, what, where are they going? No, 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 no. Let's, uh, let's build a tent. Let's, let's make this last. I want this to last forever. Isn't that your instinct? You see Jesus in his glory. You see Moses and Elijah. You're like, I never want to go down from this mountaintop. This is where I belong. But this is the point is it was just a little glimpse. It was just a taste. It was a tantalizing taste, but it was just a little taste of the kingdom to give them perspective, to, to get them on board, to make them realize, whoa, this is what's coming. And now we get to see this. I also wish that this experience would never end if I experienced it, but this is the best part of the, best part of the good news, <laughs> that the worship and the fellowship in heaven never ends it, you know how we have that saying it's just part of human life all good things come to an end whenever you're at the beach and you want to pack up and the kids are like no, no 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 let's let's stay longer you're like all good things come to an end you go on your vacation on the last day like do we have to go home all good things come to an end that statement stays here on earth when you go to heaven you get to heaven these good things you know, what they, you know what they say in heaven? I'm pretty sure. I mean, I don't know for sure, but I'm, I'm pretty sure. In heaven, this is the statement. Nobody ever says, all good things come to an end. All they ever say, whenever you say, this is amazing. I wish this would never end. All anyone will ever say to you is, we're just warming up. I know you've been here 17,000 years, but we're just warming up. This goes on forever. This never gets worse. It only gets better. And you're anticipation of, of the future is never ever disappointed. So that's the fellowship that we see. The, the third taste we get from this glimpse here is the lordship of the kingdom. We see the worship, you'll see Jesus as he is. We see the fellowship of the redeemed and being with Christ. And we see the lordship. Verse 34. As he, Peter, was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Listen to him. How many people here would estimate you've prayed the Our Father more than a hundred times in your life? I definitely have. In our school, we did it every morning. How many of you realize that every time you prayed that prayer, when you got to the part that says, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth 
as it is in heaven, you were praying for this transfiguration manifestation to come true and last forever. That you were praying for Jesus Christ to establish a kingdom here on earth where the will of God, the obedience to the Son, is done on earth as well as it is done, as consistently as it is done, to the degree at which it is done in heaven. That's what you're praying. I know there's a lot of debate about eschatology and how all these things fit together, and you've got your, your post-millennialists and your pre-millennialists, and then you've got your, your group in the middle. At the moment, it's enjoying a lot of uh, popularity in our world. The millennialists. That there's only a spiritual kingdom. We're in it now. There's no physical kingdom. And I always kind of want to facetiously say to the amillennialist friends, whom I respect, many of them, you kind of want to say to them, would you please stop praying the Lord's Prayer? Because every time you pray the Lord's Prayer, you're praying, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You're trying to tell me that God's will is being done on earth as it is in heaven right now? Look around. Flip on the news for 10 seconds just to check. No, it's not. Your prayer is not being answered. At least people who believe that Jesus is going to come back and establish a kingdom on earth understand that there will be a time where their prayer is answered. But for that to happen, God's will needs to be done on earth. Not in the spiritual realm. On earth as it is in the spiritual realm. And so we see this lordship here, this this lordship of Christ. That's the glimpse. You want a glimpse of what the kingdom's going to be like? Well, there's going to be worship. You're going to see Jesus as he is. There's going to be fellowship. You're going to be friends with people in heaven and the saints of the ages like Moses and Elijah. And you're going to obey Jesus. You're going to do the will of the Father, which is to do the will of the Son. Now, this verse 35, this is my son. Can you think of another time a voice said that? At the baptism of Jesus, yeah. So kind of the beginning of his ministry and now at the end of his ministry. And all that time, nothing's changed. He's my son. He's my chosen one. I want you to listen to him. The word here, listen, um, it's a word that means to to obey as opposed to reject. So, for example, in Luke chapter 10, verse 16, the next chapter where Jesus says, the one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me. That's the word hears. So it's not just, it's not like um, when you say, listen to him, um, akuo, it's where we get the sound of the word acoustic from. But in Greek, it doesn't just mean to, to listen like... Um, you know, listen to this Taylor Swift song. I'm going to play you. That's a passive action. You sit there and you listen. That's not what this word means. This word means the opposite of reject. It means like when you tell your kids, we're going out for dinner, listen to the babysitter. Listen to the babysitter. What are you saying? Obey the babysitter. Do what the babysitter says. That's what this word means. So it doesn't mean to hear. It means to obey. And so that's what God is saying. Obey this son of mine. Obey him. Listen to him. If you ever think, what does God want from me? You know, 
How cool would it be if I heard God's voice, God's audible voice? You know, sometimes you hear people claim that they've heard God's audible voice. That's what Sunday's sermon is going to be all about. Let me tell you this. If you begged God tonight that he would speak to you audibly, that you could hear him, and he answered that prayer and he spoke to you tonight audibly, I promise you I know what he would say to you. He would say, obey. That's what he says. That's what he's saying to him. This is the time the audible voice comes. This is Jesus. He's my son. He's my Christ. He's my anointed. Obey him. That's all you need to know from God. That's what he wants you to know. Obey him. First John chapter 2, verse 3. John says, by this we know we've come to know him. If we keep his commandments. How do I know I'm a Christian? How do I know I've met Jesus? How do I know I know him in a saving way? If you keep his commandments. If Jesus spoke to you today, he would say, follow me. Obey me. Keep my commandments. If God the Father spoke, he would say, Jesus is the way. Obey him. You don't need to hear the audible voice. You just heard mine. It's the same thing. It's what the word of God says. Listen to him. The kingdom of God will be populated by people and angels and creatures who obey Jesus. If you don't want to obey Jesus now in this life, what makes you think you even want to go to heaven? Heaven is the place where people are always obeying Jesus. If you don't want to obey Jesus, you don't want to go to heaven. I had a friend in high school at, towards the end of high school, you know, we were trying to get into college, we are trying to get our grades up, and he wanted to study medicine. But he didn't, he didn't like studying, and he confessed to me that he had been cheating. And I didn't think of it at the time, but now, if I could go back in time, I would say to him, so let me get this straight. You, you don't like studying, and you're cheating so that you can get into med school. What do you think you're going to do for the next seven years except study? It's like, med school's not one of the easier degrees from what I'm told. It's not like the one you can kind of just wing it on your test. Med school is, entire, is entirely about studying. If you don't like studying, don't go to med school. I mean, even if your cheating works and you get the grade you want to get into med school, what do you think you're going to do every moment of every day for the rest of your life? If you don't like it, don't do it. It's kind of like that. You want to say to people who, oh, I don't go to church. I'm a Christian, but I don't go to church. I've been burnt by church. I don't like the people in church. Who do you think is going to be in heaven? The people at your nightclub? The people at your work? The people at your gym? It's the people at your church that are going to be in heaven. Well, why aren't you obeying Jesus? Uh, well, you know... But you want to go to heaven? Don't kid yourself. All you're going to do in heaven for the rest of your life, for the rest of eternity, is obey Jesus. So if a person doesn't obey Jesus now, he doesn't realize that the kingdom of God is not for him or her. So you just get a glimpse of the kingdom of God. The one thing you need to take away from this is that you need to learn to love Jesus. The kingdom of God is all about Jesus. 
It's about worshiping him and seeing him as he is. It's about fellowshipping with him along with all the other saints that love him and worship him and want to fellowship with him. And it's about obeying him. Knowing his will and keeping his will. And what's, what's wonderful about being in the church is that the church on earth is the closest we get to the glimpse of the kingdom today. The church is where the kingdom manifests. The love we have for one another, the fact that we have in common, the only thing we really have in common is Jesus Christ. The church is made up of people of different ages and different races and different educations and different backgrounds. But we have Christ in common. That's the kingdom. We get to fellowship with one another. We get to have sweet relationships with one another now in this life as a a glimpse of what's to come. The the relationships we're going to have with each other forever. So at this point you might be saying, let's get back to God spoke audibly? Can I hear God speak audibly? What about these people who claim to hear God speak audibly? Are, are, Are they doing that? Am I missing out on something? Is this something I should be envious about? What about these people in my family who claim that they're hearing from God? How do I respond to them? And the answer is, come back Sunday and I'll tell you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a joy it is to read of this amazing um, glimpse of glory that Jesus gave his disciples while they were here on earth. And it makes sense to us why they were willing to follow him and why they were willing even to die to proclaim the truth of his life and death and resurrection. I pray, Lord, that we too would have a renewed, recalibrated uh, perspective on life here as things that we read about in the news or that we, we hear about coming that might make us anxious or upset about things in our country or in our world, that we would just put that in perspective of, of an eternity with you and glory. I pray that you'd help us this very week to obey you, to love you, to fellowship with one another. Um, and to proclaim this good news to others. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Makes you want to die, doesn't it? <laughs> Whenever I study you heaven, I'm like, today would be a good day to die. Um, don't tell Kim. She's working in the nursery. Don't tell her I said that. But, okay. Uh, any questions tonight? Uh, yes, William and then Nikki. And I think... One of you sent me an email this week and I said, please ask. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then Jerry in the back. Ask that question. It was a good one. Okay, we'll start with William. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I had the same. I had the same reaction. Um, so what William's saying is that you know when you read the Lord's Prayer, it's so succinct, really. You know, it's so um, concise that you you almost wish there were more words there to flesh out what it is all of this means. Um, and so William's asking to give the Clint Archer amplified version of that. Um, I'll do you one better. I preached, when I first came to the church, I preached a whole sermon series just on the Lord's Prayer, where I, each week I did one of those lines, and that's what I did for 45 minutes, unpacked each line, you know, like when he says, Our Father, you know, just how, how just gobsmacking it was for a Jewish person to be told that you can talk to God that way. 
um, and call him your father and, and how audacious that must have seemed. But the, when they said, teach us how to pray, pray our father um, who art in heaven, start with the glorifying God and where he is and what he does and his majesty and the kind of moving through the confession of your sin and the need for daily bread and all those things. It's, it is a wonderful prayer. I think the reason Jesus gave it so succinctly to them is they ask, teach us how to pray. Well, a good teacher knows that the more simply you can say something, the better the person is going to remember it. The idea was not for us to say the Our Father a hundred times a year, you know, like I grew up saying. That's not the point. That's not the model prayer that you're supposed to say over and over and over. Um, Jesus never prayed that prayer, for example, because it says, forgive us our sins. You know, he never sinned. So, but he was giving us a structure, a model prayer to build our prayers on. So even to this day, when I pray, um, I will think through those sort of categories of starting off with worshiping, um, God, making sure that I'm dealing with praising him before I move to my needs. I don't always do that, but, you know, I, I try to remember, don't, don't burst in and say, I need this, this, and this. Oh, by the way, uh, glory to you, the end. You know, it's like, no, no, no. Start off with God and then move to, okay, now I got my daily bread, I've, I need my sins forgiven, and then I need my physical things taken care of, etc., etc. Great question. Nikki, I'll give you a follow-up in a moment. <laughs> Good question. Yes, yeah, daddy, grandpa. Uh, before I repeat that question, William, did you want to, you had a follow-up from the one you just asked? Yeah, when we're praying for his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven, we want to start being part of that solution. We want to start obeying him and that at least God's will is being done on earth in my life as far as I can to obey him as it is in heaven and in my family and in my church and in my community and spreading out that way. But ultimately, I understand that I'm not going to obey Christ perfectly, nor is my family, my church, or my community until Jesus comes back and establishes that. So yes, w when we're praying, you need to be the answer to your own prayer where you can. Um, but you, just like you pray, give us this day our daily bread, but then you go to work and you, and you earn your bread. You know? So um, you, you need to be part of that as well. But we do pray that in faith and, and live it out. Yeah. Um, just looking up in answer to Nikki's question, something quickly. Um, yeah, Second Peter chapter 2, verse 7. That's the verse I was thinking of. So, Nikki's asking about Lot. So, the character Lot in the Bible is a very interesting character to study because he's, uh, he, you know, okay, so firstly, he is Abraham's nephew, and when God promises Abraham the land, he says he can split it with Lot, and Lot, they, get, they go and Lot picks the best. So, they look around and... and 
Abraham says, you pick, and then Lot picks the best part of the land, which is kind of like, oh, come on. You know, Abraham's the top dog here. He should get the best land. But Lot wants it, and Abraham gives it to him. And then Lot gets into trouble, and Abraham has to go and rescue him. And um, Lot ends up settling in Sodom and Gomorrah, um, and Lot is becomes like, it seems when you read the Genesis account, it seems like Lot is becoming like those people, thinking like them. And the, the manifestation of that that Nikki mentioned is that when the angels come to Lot to tell him and his, well, to get him and his wife and his family to leave before God nukes the place, because remember that Abraham said, if there were, what if there were 10 righteous people, would you spare the whole city? And God said, yes, I would spare the whole city for 10 righteous people. There aren't even 10 people in that city worth saving. There were six, Lot and his family. So God did save them. He didn't kill them along with all the guilty. He took them out first. So he sends the two angels down to there. But when he gets there, the men of the city, the homosexuals in the city, are attracted to the angels because they're like good-looking specimens, I guess. And they try to attack them and try to rape them. And Lot offers his daughters instead. Like, if you've got to rape something, rape my kids rather than these angels. Now... You know, as a dad, you're like, okay? <laughs> like, wait, what? What, what? No one would do that. And so people have wrestled with, like, what was Lot thinking? And some people say, well, he was just thinking, which is worse, that someone in my family gets attacked like this or that angels get attacked? Like, who knows what that would do to the universe? Like, um, so, but it just shows that he, he had no clue what to do. Then he escapes, right? So the angels strike the men blind. They escape. On the way out, they're told, don't, don't even look back. And then the, the nuking starts, but his, Lot's wife looks back, turns into a pillar of salt. So that's the story. And the question is, um, is Lot a good guy or a bad guy? <laughs> is that kind of the question? Yeah, okay. So if you just read the story, he's, he's, he's a, a strange-looking dude. Um, but in Second Peter chapter 2, verse 7, we have this very niggly little description of him. I'll, I'll read from verse 6. Um, uh, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what was going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. So Peter's saying, if you're in difficulty, trials in the world, the godly among us can be, among the human population, can be looked after by God in the midst of the danger that's happening. And as an example, he uses Lot. Like in the days of Sodom and Gomorrah and all of this was going on, here was this godly guy and God was able to rescue him from the destruction in the same way God can rescue you from the destruction that's coming. Okay, so that's the analogy. But in that, he calls Lot righteous three times. So Peter had some sort of revelation, either direct revelation from God as he's penning this or maybe in conversations with Jesus or whatever it is. He seems to have a very high view of Lot. And he describes him this way, you know, righteous Lot, he was greatly distressed. So you don't get this from the genitive story, the Genesis story. But it seems that Lot was greatly distressed by the happenings in his cities. 
um, by the sensual conduct of the wicked. And then it says, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds of what he saw and heard. So the picture the New Testament paints of Lot is that he was this godly man who was in this terrible environment and his soul was being tortured by how wicked everyone was around him. And frankly, maybe you feel that way too sometimes, like at work. And there's just, you know, people taking the Lord's name in vain and cussing and everyone's sleeping with each other and everyone's stealing and everyone's like, you know, got crazy worldviews and you're like the only person you feel like who's sane because you're believing the Bible and your soul is tormented to be in that situation. And that's how the Bible paints a lot. So we have to take that verse into account as well when we go and read that narrative. I don't know if that is a satisfying answer, but that's all I got for you. Thanks. Uh, and Jerry, you had a good email question that I forget, but I asked you to ask it. Yes, I have several questions, but uh, they're mostly centered on the millennium, the thousand-year reign of Christ. Now, is that the start of the kingdom? Okay. Uh, that's a complicated answer. So let me start with that. The millennial kingdom, just to remind you what that is, that's the thousand-year reign of Christ on earth that happens um, after... The, the rapture, the seven years of tribulation, Jesus comes back and establishes this earth. So the question is, is that the start of the kingdom? Well, remember that there's two aspects to the kingdom of God. One is the spiritual aspect and one is the physical aspect, where Jesus is actually going to be in Jerusalem reigning among people. The spiritual aspect has already begun. That was accomplished on the cross, or it was initiated on the cross, inaugurated in Christ's ministry. And so that's what Jesus means when he says to John... Uh, he says in John 18 to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. That's what he means. This, there's a spiritual kingdom of God. That part's already started. So we are in the, the kingdom of God in that sense, in the spiritual sense, but we await for the second sense. The, there's the already not yet. The already is the spiritual that started. The not yet is still coming. And yes, that, is, that millennial kingdom is the kingdom that's spoken of as the kingdom of God throughout Scripture where Jesus is the son of David, ruling from the throne of David in Jerusalem. Psalm 2, the nations, um, uh, you know, he rules over the nations with a rod of iron. All the prophecies of the, the nations streaming to Jerusalem to worship, etc. That that's the kingdom of God. Okay, next part of the question. Yeah, great question. So, um, so when Jesus is on earth for those thousand years, uh, Revelation tells us that Satan is bound and no longer deceiving the nations during that time. At the end of the, uh, the thousand years, he's released from the abyss, and then he does deceive the nations, and they rise up against Christ, and he wipes them out once for all, and then he starts the, uh, what we call the eternal state after the thousand-year kingdom. So there's this thousand-year period where there's no Satan involved. And, and presumably his demons as well. So there's no demonic, satanic influence on the world. So the question is, is there still sin? And the answer is yes, because remember, at the end, you have a war with Jesus, so there are sinners. So how does that happen? And the answer is that that's where the, um, the, the population of the millennial kingdom comes from the believers who live through the tribulation period. 
So believers are raptured at the beginning of seven years, and then during that seven years, people get saved. You know, there's 144,000 Jewish evangelists who get saved. They go out. Um, in fact, Zechariah tells us all of the Jews will be saved. You've also got Gentiles being saved because uh, the prophecies talk about nations coming to Jesus um, from all the different tribes and tongues. And so you've got believers, uh, you've got Jews and Gentiles getting saved during the seven-year period. Widespread salvation, lots of people getting saved. Um, then Jesus comes back at the end of the tribulation, kills the unbelievers, and those believers, the people who got saved during the tribulation, they, they are just still mortal. They're not glorified. So they just they stay on earth when Jesus comes back. And they rebuild after the earthquakes and all the problem and the war and that kind of thing. And, and we are there helping them, and so are the angels. And we rebuild the kingdom. And then the, you've got this thousand years in which um, the prophecy in uh, Isaiah chapter 11, for example, says that, that people live so long in this kingdom because there's, you know, there's no UV and there's, the animals aren't trying to kill you anymore and the, there's no disease and, and people aren't trying to kill you. There's like really nothing to kill you in this kingdom. People live so long that if somebody dies at 100 you know, like step down an elevator shaft or whatever, I don't know, you can still die. They, they're considered a curse. They're considered a baby who's died if you live to be only 100 because most people will live like the full thousand years, like it was in Genesis where people lived, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years. So all that to say, during this time, there's a massive population boom because you've got all of these believers and they're having babies and they're living longer and it's going to be like populating the planet in, in the days of Genesis. Lots and lots of generations for those thousands of years. Well, remember, everybody born at that time is a sinner because their parents are sinners because they're not glorified people. So you, you've, got, you've got a whole population, a whole world that's being populated by mortal people who all need to come to know Jesus and put their faith in him and trust in him. Um, and some of them do and some of them don't. And the ones that don't are those nations that rise up against him at the end. So yes, there is sin still in the kingdom. It's highly restrained at that point because the whole world is going to be set up for Christ and his people. But as time goes on, there will be more and more unbelievers among them. The real mystery is how can anybody be an unbeliever when Jesus is actually living on earth? And it's a bit of a mystery on one hand. On the other hand, there were people who were unbelievers when Jesus was living on earth before. And they saw the miracles. And they go fed by him, and then they try to crucify him, the same people. Um, Judas saw everything that everyone else saw. He didn't believe. So just because Jesus is here on earth doesn't mean the non-elect are going to get saved. They're still non-elect. They're still going to reject him. You know? Good. Any follow-up questions? Yeah, I have one more. Uh, at the end of the millennium, the world is going to be destroyed, and there's a new heaven, new earth. So I don't grant your premise that um, the earth will be destroyed. I know which passage you're thinking about. Um, I'm not going to go into that too much depth now. But yes, I, I know what you're referring to. At the end of the millennial kingdom, there's a, the eternal state starts. Um, and so the idea, there's a new heavens and a new earth. And a new Jerusalem that comes out of heaven onto earth. And I don't believe that the earth is destroyed. I know you're thinking of the passage in Peter that says... Um, you know, the heavenly bodies will melt up and they'll be destroyed as through fire, blah, blah, blah. I've actually written a paper on that and I take Tom Schreiner's view and the earth is recreated. It's or not recreated, it's restored back to its former Edenic glory. Eden was plan A, 
there is no plan B. That's my view. Eden was plan A, and it's not like, well, Satan ruined things, we're just going to destroy it, and plan B is we're going to start over. No, plan A is I'm going to get the earth back to the way it was in Eden, and yes, there's this long parenthesis of human history, but at the end, everything goes back to Eden, and the new Jerusalem is the new Eden. Um, and Christ is living there, and we get to fellowship with him, and then at that point, everybody will be glorified. So, you, so the real, I, I mean, I know what you're getting at, though. I don't want to nitpick your question. It's just, it's, it's kind of what my dissertation's on at the moment, so I'm a little picky about it. But, um, <laughs> but uh, what, you're, what you're really asking is, so the mortals who live all the way through the thousand-year kingdom, how do they enter the eternal state do they all have to die to be glorified or is there going to be like another rapture to glorify them? And the answer is, I don't know. That's not part of my dissertation, so I don't know. Um, I don't know. But they, they, at, at some point, all mortals become immortal for the eternal state, yeah. I think. I mean, I, I think that's necessary. <laughs>